Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. Thanks for joining us today. You know, our mission here at Open Your Eyes is to help us all open our eyes a bit more to the possibilities and realities all around us. And this episode, number 104, concludes the second year of our podcast. The next podcast will start year three. So today, we have something special prepared for many of you who are on the up and down road of life. And if this podcast inspires you a bit, please share it with a friend. That's how we can fulfill our mission a bit more to more people today. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about the road ahead in your life. Not long ago, golf's most iconic event, the Masters, was played for the 87th time at Augusta National. Augusta National opened for play in 1932, and it is the top-ranked club of Golf Digest's 100 Greatest Courses. It's known for its impeccable appearance. The pine needles are imported, the sounds of birds are played on speakers, and even the ponds were once dyed to get a deeper color of blue. What isn't manufactured are the azaleas and the dogwoods. These and the historic play from some of golf's very best have made Augusta National famous. In 2010, Tom Watson, a 60-year-old two-time Masters champion, was golfing in the Masters just as he had done for years and years. You see, past champions can golf in the tournament, but there's no way a 60-year-old golfer could ever compete with the younger pros of the day. On Thursday in the first round, Fred Couples, however, a 50-year-old past champion, came in with the score of the day, a leading 66. Tied for second was Phil Mickelson and Tom Watson. He was the only golfer that day to have a bogey-free round. The headlines were alive with excitement, asking the question, could Tom Watson, at his age, win the Masters? Well, there was a reason Tom was having such a remarkable day, because just a few days earlier at Hole 13, during a father and son round, with the help of the chairman at Augusta, Tom's son Michael arranged for an interruption in play at the 13th hole. You see, Michael, who was serving as Tom's caddy that week, had a plan that was unknown to his fiancée. At the 13th, near the azaleas that lined that fairway, his fiancée Beth was walking along following the Watsons, and Michael hit an errant shot, and Beth was supposed to help him look for the ball. The plan was followed when Michael didn't hit the shot he had planned, but undeterred, Michael proposed to Beth and accepted. There on the course, on a perfect day, with a Hall of Fame father, Son and fiance in love at the 13th hole made a match that matters most and won. While riding the emotional high of the proposal and his amazing first round, Tom would end up tying for 18th in the tournament, an amazing feat for any 60 year old golfer. But that emotional high and the emotional highs Tom had 30 years earlier when he won the Masters two times in five years were nothing compared to the emotional low of the Masters in 2004. That year, during the 68th Masters, Watson was at that Masters without his lifelong caddy, Bruce Edwards. Bruce had carried the golf bag for Tom for almost 30 years. 
And on the rainy Thursday morning, the first day of the Masters tournament, Watson played with tears in his eyes on all 18 holes. He was noticeably emotional at almost every stage in the round. Sometimes tears ran down his cheeks as he stepped up to hit the ball. You see, the night before, Bruce was honored with the Ben Hogan Award for Courage by the Golfers Writers Association of America. Bruce was too sick to be there, but Tom and Bruce's mother accepted the award on his behalf. A room full of caddies were there at the award dinner to celebrate the award, and they went back to the house and called Bruce to tell him about the evening. They hung up at 1 a.m., and the last thing Bruce said was, I love you guys. Five hours and 26 minutes later, early in the morning, Bruce passed away. Tom's wife got the news an hour later, but Tom had already left for the start of the first round of the Masters. So she drove to the clubhouse to the champion's locker room to give the news to Tom. And Tom, after hearing it, knew it would be almost impossible to golf that day, but Bruce had made him promise to play. You see, after graduating high school and playing a little golf, Bruce's friend got him into caddying. By chance, he flew to a caddy job in Philadelphia and was teamed up with Jack Nicholas. And in those days, professional golfers used caddies at the club where they were going to golf. The practice of having your own caddy hadn't caught hold yet. So for Bruce to get the caddy with any major golfer like Nicholas was a big deal. But when the practice of having your own caddy started, Tom Watson was in his rookie year as a pro. At a tournament in Lake Tahoe, as Watson headed for the clubhouse, Bruce got the courage and approached him. My name is Bruce Edwards, he said. I just finished high school in Wethersfield, Connecticut, and I'm going to spend a year on tour caddying. If you don't have a caddy right now, I'd like to work for you. Well, Watson didn't hear much of what Bruce said beyond his first name and the plan to spend a year on the tour. Watson was caught a little off guard. And to him, Bruce looked like most caddies. Long brown hair, easy loping stride. I saw a long-haired kid in jeans asking me to caddy, he said. He was polite, and I remember that. So I said, okay, we'll try it for a week and see what happens. In the first tournament, Watson played well. Most of all, Bruce was a fast walker, and Watson loved fast walkers. And not long after, Watson gave Bruce the job for good. You know, a caddy's job isn't easy. You have to find a way to keep the golfer motivated when they're struggling. In one tournament, Watson was struggling at one hole, and Watson was in the fairway. Watson turned to Bruce and asked him what the yardage was to the water. And the reason for the question was obvious. He wanted to hit a safe layup shot in front of the water, and not risk landing in the water by trying to hit over the water. Well, Bruce heard the question, but acted as if he hadn't. You've got 235 to the front of the green plus 12 to the flag, he said. That's a total of 247. I didn't ask you that, Watson said. I asked you the distance from here to the water. One author wrote of this experience and said, Now Bruce turned to his boss and faced him. I heard you, he said. You don't need to lay up. You can take a three-wood and hit this ball on the green from here. Watson didn't think so. He didn't think he was hitting the ball well enough to try that shot on a windy day. Plus, he was unhappy with his game and he didn't want to gamble. He just wanted to hit a safe layup. So he again asked Bruce what the distance was to the water, his tone making it clear that was the shot he intended to play. Bruce told him the yardage, but then got angry. He called me a chicken blank mother blank, Watson says, laughing in the retelling. I did, Bruce says. Then I took out a three wood and a six iron and threw him on the ground and said, 
You do what you want to do, but it's 247 to the flag, and you've got that shot unless you want to prove that you're a chicken blank mother blank. And with that, he walked up the fairway. Watson picked up the three wood, hit the ball, cleared the water, and made it to the green. Well, by 1975, Watson was a star, and he would go on to win 39 times on the PGA Tour. He had an aggressive, fast-paced style, and he was named PGA Player of the Year six times and the leading money winner five times. Over the years, he and Bruce were always together. In 2002, Bruce's wife walked out onto the porch one day where Bruce was sitting. There was a thickness to his speech, she said. It wasn't a big deal. I just figured maybe he had a couple of drinks or maybe he was really tired, but I did notice it. And his slurring speech continued. Even Watson started to notice it. Watson thought Bruce may have had a small stroke. Then, at a senior tour championship on one hole, Watson marked his ball, picked it up, and tossed it to Bruce so he could clean it before he putted. Bruce reached out with his left hand to catch the ball and couldn't close his hand around it. The ball dropped to the green, and Bruce began looking at his hand to figure out what was wrong. He waved over Watson and said, hey, Tom, he said, take a look at this. Something's wrong with my hand. Later, Watson insisted Bruce go to the Mayo Clinic. And not long into the doctor's visit, the doctor asked Bruce if he knew what ALS was. Bruce said he did. The doctor said it's also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. There's no cure. And in all likelihood, you have one to three years to live. He paused for a moment and said, I would advise that you go home and get your affairs in order. Fourteen months later, with Tom Watson having paid all of Bruce's medical bills, and fighting every one of those days with Bruce to find a way to extend his life. In the morning in the champion's locker room, Watson got word that Bruce had lost his fight to ALS. And Tom Watson had to golf 18 holes knowing his caddy had succumbed to the disease. That's the thing, isn't it? Life is very much like a round of golf. Sometimes we get to golf the round of our life, winning and living with joy. And then the rounds of grief and disappointment and sadness come our way. No one is immune. The very best golfers only win a small percentage of the time. The best plans don't always come to fruition, and the best shots often don't go in. And the thing is, life is a series of non-fatal mistakes. Life is a series of highs and lows. And the road ahead is full of challenges and even failures. And I think that too often we get to thinking that the road of life is supposed to be full of wins and highs and more wins and more highs, but that isn't the case. And we can and should be helping each other and our children understand that how we navigate the ups and downs in life does in the end determine how happy we are in life. Because if our mindset is that we're happy if things always go well or we always win, and we're unhappy if we don't, then life's going to be filled with a lot of unhappy moments. On the other hand, it is entirely possible to be happy in both the highs and the lows. And life is not defined by the most recent mistake or disappointment that comes our way. It is defined by how we use and how we view our mistakes and disappointments. You know, we just concluded the NCAA Women's Basketball Tournament a few weeks back. And one of the most emotional wins was the game between LSU and Utah. LSU is used to being in the postseason tournament. But if Utah won, 
it would only be the second time in program history that the Utah women would have advanced to the final eight. With only 13 seconds left in the game, LSU was trailing 63-62, to and Utah looked poised to win. However, LSU had the ball, and Alexis Morris was fouled. Morris stepped to the line and made both free throws, putting LSU ahead by one. Now, in case you may think making free throws when the game is on the line is an easy thing, think otherwise. It is incredibly difficult with nerves and pressure to make those shots. And many professional players have missed free throws and lost the game. Carl Malone, LeBron James, and Kawhi Leonard all lost NBA playoff games when their free throws could have won the game for their team. So LSU's Morris did incredibly well. Then Utah's Jenna Johnson was fouled. She went to the foul line with the game on the line. Her first free throw was an air ball, didn't even hit the rim. If she made the second, she would at least tie the game. The shot bounced off the rim, and Utah would go on to lose. Well, after the game, while the LSU players celebrated on the floor, the camera went to the Utah bench. There was Johnson in tears. I thought to myself, I wonder how this moment will impact Jenna five and ten years from now. Will it define her? Then I heard the Utah coach answer a question at the press conference and I knew Jenna was going to be okay. Here's what Coach Lynn Roberts said. Referring to Jenna, she said, she played her tail off today. She left it all out there, and I just told her that I was proud of her. A game never comes down to the last shot. She's a fighter, and those are pressure moments, and it's a growing experience for her. She's just a sophomore, but I don't think she will miss free throws again if she gets the opportunity. If you said Jenna Johnson is on the line in this game to win it, would you take it? Heck yes, and I'd take it tomorrow. You know, one of the most significant ways we need to open our eyes is to stop judging isolated situations in our lives and labeling them as failures or successes. Instead, we can see the road ahead, that it is a long-term road, and a temporary dip in our speed or results doesn't define who we are. As the great author said, the essence of man is imperfection. And I would say the essence of learning and becoming who you're supposed to become is learning from and embracing imperfection. NBA coach Rick Pitino, who's made plenty of mistakes in his career, said, failure can be good. It's fertilizer. Everything I've learned about coaching, I've learned from making mistakes. So if all of this is true, then how can we help each other and help our team or family deal with the difficulties and failures with the right perspective? Well, first, fix your vision on the road ahead. That's how you win in life. Really, the way you lose in life is not to look past your mistake or setback. But when you look beyond today, you can handle whatever today brings. Think about it. If you trip and fall on a marathon race, which I have done, it doesn't stop you. You can get up, get back on pace, and meet your end goal. Looking ahead is a huge help in life. For example, if you really knew, I mean, you saw a vision of it, and it was certain, that your nine-year-old son would grow up to be a world-renowned heart surgeon, would you treat him differently? Yes, because you know who he really is. When he failed his first science test, what would you do? Would you let him drop science? No. 
because you know who he really is, you're looking on the road ahead to who he will become. And the same goes for you. How do you see yourself? If you know who you want to become, it will make all the difference in how you define the present circumstances. So when you fail, how do you see it as a momentary event, not a lifelong epidemic or condemnation? Well, first is to clearly know where you're headed. If you as a parent have the end goal to raise children who are emotionally well-adjusted, know how to work hard, and have strong values that guide their life, then how they do in sports or in a class or even in making poor judgments won't define them in your eyes. In fact, they will learn how to react to their mistakes by how you react to their mistakes. I guarantee as a sophomore, Jenna Johnson at Utah will listen to what her coach said about her missed free throws and how her coach defined them. And I bet as a junior, she will be a stronger player as a result. You see, we each have the ability to make meaning from our actions and the actions of our children. We get to define ourselves and them. And if we're focused on who we are becoming, we can define our misses or mistakes as a step in the direction of becoming who we want to become. Remember, our eyes are placed in front of our head for a reason. One author wrote, a moment of conscious triumph makes one feel that after this, nothing will really matter. A moment of realized disaster makes one feel that this is the end of everything. But neither feeling is realistic, for neither event is really what it is felt to be. Instead, we can focus on the road ahead. You know, Scotty Scheffler, currently ranked number one on the PGA Tour, said, I'm not worried about winning every tournament or making mistakes. I'm only worried about getting a little better each day. And if I do that, everything will take care of itself. Next, it is a simple fact that difficult roads often lead to beautiful destinations. Sometimes, while traveling the difficult road, we think we may never get off that road and thinking this way leads us to give up or to quit. And here's a simple fact. You may be on a difficult road right now, but I know there is relief and success coming soon. You were placed on this earth to make mistakes, in part. Have you ever wondered why Christians take such faith in Jesus Christ? Because if he did, in fact, die and suffer for our sins, and we can, through him, find forgiveness for our sins, then it means that this life that we're living was designed for us to make mistakes and to learn by experience how to become better. Could it really be that God's plan is a plan of learning from our mistakes? And if that is the case, then the difficult road you are on is a purposeful road to help you rise to become more like your maker and more like the person you're destined to be. You are the work of God's hands. You may have disappointed yourself or someone else, but not him. He believes in the person you can become and is ordering and directing your road for the purpose of helping you along the way. Your difficult road will help you rise, and you will find the strength to travel the road and make a better you along the way. A Christian missionary couple was called to Africa to serve deep in the heart of the continent. When they got to the coast, they were told that they were taking machinery to a missionary center at their outpost in Zaire. They had a whole truckload of heavy machinery. 
When they got the truck completely loaded, it weighed about eight tons. And that soon turned out to be a problem. The road that led to where they were going passed over many rivers and many streams and over deep ravines. And some of the bridges were crude. They were made of logs tied together with vines. Some of the bridges had a three ton on the sign next to them, meaning the weight limit was three tons. Some had six tons, but none of them had eight tons written on the side beside them. The truck was too heavy to cross. One of the missionaries was deeply concerned, and his spouse said, what are we going to do about all that weight on the bridges? We're going to have to leave some of the stuff behind. But the missionary responded, there isn't anything we can do to lighten the load. We'll just have to reinforce the bridges. So that's what they did. They started out, and at each bridge, they would stop, and with considerable work, sometimes dangerous work, because the rivers were infested with crocodiles and poisonous snakes, they would cut down trees, strengthen the bridge, and rebuild the bridge to the point where it could carry eight tons. And thus, they delivered their supplies. That's the thing about trying, isn't it? Your difficult road will help you become better each time you try, despite the lack of strength of the bridge or the chasms or gaps in your talent or means, you strengthen your bridge. Your talents rise and your gaps are spanned. And others will cross those bridges after you, by the way. You will cross the bridges, but your work to become better will help others as well. In fact, on your road someday will be a sign paying tribute to who you have become. You know, Arnold Palmer was perhaps the greatest golfer of all time. And in his 40-year career, he won 92 championships, 61 of them in the United States. During his career, he was named Sports Illustrated Athlete of the Decade. In 1961 at the Los Angeles Open on the par 5 ninth hole, Palmer hit a good drive. He wanted to get on the green with his second shot, but he hit the ball out of play and had to take a penalty stroke. This started one bad shot after another. Finally, he finished with a 12 on the hole and didn't make the cut to play in the final rounds of the tournament. And if you go to the ninth hole at Rancho Park Golf Course in Los Angeles, there is a bronze plaque that states, on Friday, January 6, 1961, Arnold Palmer, voted golfer of the year and pro athlete of the year, took a 12 on this hole. Now, Palmer came back and won the Los Angeles Open three out of the next six years. But the plaque stays as a tribute to one of the most critical skills any successful golfer must have, the ability to stay on the road to success and not get taken off that road by a temporary failure. Next, help your children take responsibility for failures and mistakes. And the best lesson we can teach them is most of us work our way out of failure or difficulty. In other words, if there's no wind, Row. Life is not intended to be easy. Take responsibility not just for your successes, but for your failures as well, President Obama told the graduates at Kalamazoo High School. The truth is, no matter how hard you work, you won't necessarily ace every class or succeed in every job. There will be times when you screw up. And when that happens, it's the easiest thing in the world to start looking around for someone to blame. Your professor was too hard. Your boss was a jerk. The coach was playing favorites. Your friend just didn't understand. Take responsibility. Your hard work and perseverance can and will make all the difference. 
Now, if you haven't done as well as you wanted in your business, take responsibility. Your hard work will get you where you need to go. If you're stuck in a habit, take responsibility. You can get better every day. And it will take work and effort. If your children are not succeeding, help them see that work will make all the difference. Next, don't ever quit. Don't ever lose faith that you can do what you set out to do. The country of South Vietnam existed from 1955 to 1975 and was the site of one of the most controversial conflicts in U.S. history. It was in the middle of this conflict, as North Vietnam sought to occupy his country, that Ke Hue was born. His family was Chinese, and he had eight brothers and sisters. In 1975, following the withdrawal of U.S. forces and the occupation of their country, Ke Hue and his family fled Vietnam and eventually were admitted into the United States and settled in California. There he attended Alhambra High School. Before high school, however, when he was 12 years old, his brother wanted to go to the local elementary where an open casting audition was taking place. So Ke Hue went along with him. The movie, which was being auditioned for, was called Temple of Doom. And while he was there, the film's director, a man by the name of Steven Spielberg, noticed him. They weren't interested in his brother, but Ke Hui was just young enough and quirky enough to fit the part of short round, and he played opposite Harrison Ford in Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom would go on to be one of the best-selling movies that year and even that decade. Then Ke Hui would land another blockbuster role in Goonies, and he was nominated for the Saturn Award for Best Performance by a Child Actor. And it seemed, even at the age of 14, his start was rising, and he would soon be starring in even the best leading roles in Hollywood. But while he had a few roles, they were far from the lead roles he had hoped for. He went to acting school, edited a few movies, but never really seemed to land those leading roles. The career that he had hoped for seemed to have slipped from his grasp. And Kei Hui's story is not only common in Hollywood, but it happens all the time to people like you and me. We start a new business or set a new goal, and with enthusiasm, we may have some initial success. But as the process wears on, the success we had doesn't seem to come as easy. We have failures, and we wonder if we can stick with what we're trying to do in life. You see, doing things over the long term, the long run, is one of the hardest, greatest tests in life. For Kei Hui, it was a long road as well. Thousands of times over 20 years, he thought about quitting. But in 2018, he saw a movie called Crazy Rich Asians, a romantic comedy with a cast of Asian characters. He resolved to do whatever it took to get back in front of the camera. So he decided to audition for a new movie that he heard about. Well, about the same time, writer-directors Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinart we're looking for an actor to play a part in a new movie. We needed someone who could do drama, do comedy, was bilingual, a martial artist, and then kind of dopey and sweet. And we saw a gif of Short Round from Indiana Jones, and we were like, what about that guy? I wonder what he's up to. And it just so happened, he was the first person we auditioned for the role. Well, Hequa would go on to play a leading role in the movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And just a few weeks ago, he became the first Vietnam-born actor to earn an Academy Award. 
It is a perfect lesson to never quit. Your success is coming. Get back into the game. Try out for that new part. Step up to your new business. Get a new team. Do what it takes to overcome. And you will find your end goal on the road of life. Because the truth is, we can grow and change. And what I've learned is people change when they hurt enough that they have to, learn enough that they want to, and try again and again until they're able to. So as we end today, remember, the temporary bump on your road will not determine your end destination. You can help your children see that failure is temporary and the decisions that they make when they miss a free throw or make a bad choice does not define them. How they react, how they keep their focus on the road ahead will define them. And the same goes for you. You get to decide what failure means to you. And you can choose how you will react to a temporary failure or if you'll focus on the amazing road ahead. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.